Parshas Kiseitzei probably has the largest variety of topics that one could discuss. I'm going to discuss an Indian matter that I have talked about before, but we're going to talk about a different aspect of that very same topic. The topic is mentioned in this parsha, the parsha of Yibum and Chalitza. Just a little bit of background. The Torah says the following scenario. If a man and woman are married, they have no children, and then the husband dies, so normally, as soon as a woman's husband dies, she's now free to marry anybody else. However, if they had no children, and there are brothers to her late husband, she cannot just now go and marry anybody else, but there is a zika. Zika means a chain that exists now between the widow and her former brother or brothers-in-law, and therefore she's not free just to marry anybody else. She's chained to the, say, the, the one brother. Usually in yeshiva we say Ruvain was the husband who died. Nothing to do with Ruvain Slersberg. And Shimon was the brother who survived. And there could be other brothers, Levi and Yehuda, etc. <coughs> so she is now chained to Shimon. So the Torah says there's only one of two ways to solve this situation here. One is through the act of Yibum, which means that Shimon marries his late brother's wife. Normally a person's not allowed to marry the brother's wife. But let us say they had had children and now she's a widow. She can marry anybody else, but she can't marry her late husband's brother. That's called Eishazach, the wife of your brother. Normally you can't marry the wife of your brother. But here the Torah says a special situation where not only are you allowed to marry the wife of your late brother, but there's actually a mitzvah. And that is called Yibam. And we've talked about this before. Yibam goes all the way back to the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Yibum is a factor, we've talked about this in the, in the marriage of Boaz to Rus. There were aspects of Yibum there. So it's very ancient. But on the other hand, don't think, well, that's only something that's in the Torah way back. But it really has nothing to do with nowadays. No, no, a thousand times no. The laws of Yibum, or more specifically of Chalitza, are very much pertinent to today as well, as we will explain. So as I said, the situation is that Ruvain passes away, and now Shimon, the surviving brother, has now this sister-in-law that he has to deal with. Yes. 
It makes no difference where. America, Israel, all the same. This mitzvah has not, nothing to do with Israel. Now, so one way is for him to marry the sister-in-law. That's Yibam. We, however, are not going to be discussing Yibam. Because Yibam we don't do nowadays. Even the time of the Gemara, there were certain places where they did not do Yibam anymore. More than one reason why. But it's not relevant to today. But Chalitza is. What is Chalitza? Chalitza is a ceremony by which the wife, the sister-in-law, is able to break that bond, break that chain that exists between herself and her late husband. Now, it's a ceremony. It means they gather together. They come to Bezdin, and there are the, the Torah lists. What do you do at this ceremony to break this chain? I'll have you know that the exact same way that it's written in the Torah is exactly the way that it's done today. I was learning in Yeshiva. Arimashah Feinstein. This is about 50 years ago. One day they said, they came into the yeshiva and they said, whoever's interested, going, there's going to be a halitza ceremony in the next room, whatever. Ramosha Feinstein will be presiding. And if anybody wants to see this actually done, close your Gemara and come into the room. Well, everybody, most people were interested in they wanted to see it. And some people, any excuse to get out for a half hour or whatever. So, so the Vesmedrish emptied out. And now everybody crowded into this room, and we actually saw it. And I saw it twice. By the third time already, I'd seen it already, so I wasn't going to see anything new, so the third time I didn't go. But we were actually there, and we saw what went on. So you have the picture, it's a room, and you have the three rabbis from Marshall Feinstein, he was sitting in the middle, and he had the Shulchan Aruch open, the, the, the holy book right in front of him, and he had these other two rabbis on two sides of him. And the brother-in-law was there, and she was there, and there were witnesses, and there were people, onlookers, and so on. In any event, this was the this is what takes place. In order to, it's not it's not mumbo jumbo, it's not the magic, whatever. But there is a ceremony that the Torah, if you read in the Torah, if you read it in Shul, you read it on Shabbos, you read it anytime. Open the Chumash, and this is exactly what it says. You have to realize that in the time of the Gemara, or the time of the Chumash, where Yibum, where marrying the sister-in-law was an option. And it was up to the brother-in-law. If he wanted to marry her, he could force her into marrying her. We can discuss that maybe another time, but it seems she's not fair to her. Nevertheless, that is the law, that it was his option. So if he wants to marry her, fine. They get married, and then hopefully they live happily ever after. But if he says, no, I do not want to marry her, then the only other recourse is this chalitza, the other ceremony. Just so we get a definition, chalitza means to remove. 
The full name is Chalitza Sasanda. There's a special shoe that the brother-in-law wears, and she removes the shoe in the court. She actually goes over and removes the shoe, and that's one of the steps of freeing her. We're going to discuss how does that work, and why the shoe, and what do you do exactly. But just to give you a little bit of background, this is what's called Chalitza. That's short for Chalitza Sasando, the removal of the shoe. So now, the Torah says there are five steps that take place. The first thing is, he has to declare in front of the Besdin, I do not want to marry my sister-in-law. Doesn't have to give a reason why. I don't want. I don't want. The next step is that she comes in front of the court and says, he does not want to marry me. She has to repeat it. He says he doesn't want to marry her, and she says he does not want to marry her. Then, <clears throat> he has the shoe on already. That's the... She goes over to where he is. He's standing. And she goes over, bends over to his shoe, unwraps the straps. So I'm going to show you in a minute what that's all about. Removes the shoe from her foot, from his foot. The next part of the ceremony is spitting. Not spitting into his face, although if you read the just words, it looks like it's saying, and she spits into his face. No, she spits in front of him. She's not supposed to spit into his face. She's supposed to spit in front of him onto the ground. But that is part of the ceremony, the spitting. Okay? And then, she then has to announce again that he does not want to marry me, and therefore he is going to be always branded with the term, the one whose shoe was removed. That's what the Torah says. And it's amazing that in so many years, thousands of years, the ceremony remains the same. I first would like to show you what the Chalitza shoe looks like. Oops, in the encyclopedia. I made copies. So everybody will get their copy and they can see what the shoe looks like. Yes. <laughs> you can see from the shoe, it's basically, it's made out of leather, it's basically a slipper, and attached to the slipper are two very long straps, which are then tied around his foot. And so the act of chalitza is the unraveling of the straps and actually removing the shoe from his foot. Yes? What is the significance of spinning the shoe? I mean, 
we're going to get to the spitting, but first things first. First comes the removal of the shoe. So. Years ago, when my children went to Torah Academy, every year they had what they called the mitzvah fair, where each of the children was supposed to have an arts and crafts project and to depict a certain mitzvah. Now, just like when it comes to the science fair, when these fourth graders or sixth graders come in with all kinds of scientific inventions and so on, you know the parents help me. I mean, you know that. So I'm the first to confess that when I, I couldn't help them with the scientific. But when it came to a mitzvah fair, so I was very much hands-on and helped my children. Sometimes they won, sometimes they didn't win. First prize, second prize, but I did help them. So one year, one of my children, we decided that we were going to actually show a chalitza shoe. How do you know how to make a chalitza shoe? I went over to Rabbi Yawas, the Colonel of Rocha, and I asked him, do you have a chalitza shoe? He says, yes. I says, can I just borrow it for one day? Yes. So he lent me the shoe, took the shoe home, and now we're going to try to duplicate it. So you have to get, the first part is to get a slipper. Uh, I didn't have a leather slipper. Having to mention my dilemma to the man that I learned with for a long time, many of you knew him, Dr. Shield, old Shalom. Dr. Shield says, yeah, I got an old slipper. I only he brought it in, it was a leather slipper. We got some straps, I don't know from where, we attached it to the shoe, and we actually made this same shoe that you see in that picture, a Khalitsa shoe. That's all we had. We didn't go through that. We got to show the ceremony of the police just to show what the item was. Whether he won or not, I don't remember, it doesn't matter. But this is a hands-on creation of a Khalitsa shoe. And this is and then I gave it back to everybody else. So this indeed is what the shoe looks like. So it's the act of removing the shoe that is symbolic, you might say, of the severing of the bond. Once she has this chalitza, and there's a document, obviously, she walks away, so she goes to another city, and they say, well, wait a minute, weren't you married, and didn't you have a brother-in-law? She whips out her paper, no, we had a chalitza, and here's the paper, and so on. And now she's free to marry anybody else. She can't marry a Kohen. She'll be like a divorcee who cannot marry a Kohen, but anybody else she's not free to marry. So this is the ceremony known as chalitza, yes. Right foot, yes. Chalitza is the right foot, yes. That's correct. Fine. So the question is, what is the significance of this shoe? So I saw a very interesting answer given in a new publication. There's a new organization called Deershoe. They have learning and they have tomorrows and they sponsor all kinds of learning things. And they actually give out every month, every month, a newsletter. It's all in Hebrew and it's the great Torah. And in Philadelphia, my son is the one who distributes it. So it may, you may see it in a shul. It's in Hebrew. I don't know if those people can read it or not. It's a scholarly paper. So imagine my surprise when I pick up this most recent one, 
And sure enough, he talks about this very same subject. And he says a very interesting quote that I'm going to share with you. He, asks, he begins by asking a very simple question, one which may have bothered you over the years. We know when it comes to Yom Kippur, when it comes to Tisha B'Av, we are told we cannot wear leather shoes. We have to put on sneakers, rubber, or plastic, or cloth. And why? Because the Torah says you have to pain your soul. You have to pain your soul. Or in the case of uh, Tisha B'Av, it's morning. We're mourning over the base of the Gosh, Just like anyone in mourning, you have to remove their shoes and so on. But he asks a very simple question. He says, sometimes the sneakers or the cloth shoes are more comfortable than the leather shoes. So it seems to be you're defeating the purpose. I've thought of that years ago. So he says a very interesting background to the whole idea of the leather shoes. He says that leather shoes represents man's mastery over the rest of the creation. We know that there's the, in English we used to say there's, there's mineral, vegetable, animal. Three classifications. We say there's four. There's, there's mineral, there's vegetable, there's animal, and then there's human. We don't put everybody on the animal like the Greeks did. Okay. And others will say, well, there's humans, but there's humans and then Jews. Some groups would say, yeah, there's the other Jews and us. You know? So it depends how many classifications you want to give. But if you're willing to just stick to the four, so then the highest is a human being. When a human being wears shoes, what he is saying is, I'm higher in, the, in this ladder, so to speak, in this hierarchy than the animal. Because we take the hide of the animal, the leather, and we make it into shoes. What do I do? I put it on my foot, and now I walk with it. I stomp on the earth with it. The earth which has vegetation, and the earth which has uh, minerals. Dirt, nothing's growing in it. Or plants, you walk on the grass. So if you walk on the grass, you're showing your mastery over the animal, over the vegetation, and over the uh, mineral world as well. So the word in Hebrew for that is called shilton. Shilton means to rule over, means jurisdiction, to be higher than. A shalit is a ruler. Shilton. He says normally man has to show that he is higher than animals. The Gemara says a person should sell everything that they have, but make sure to buy shoes. Sit there if you're going swimming, you're going to the mikvah, something like that. To walk around barefoot is wrong. Why? Because we have to show that we are above the ground. We are Adam. The ground is Adamo. We have to elevate ourselves from the earthiness of the earth and to show that we are higher. How do we do that? By wearing shoes. And specifically leather shoes made out of animal skin. When it comes to Yom Kippur, no, at that point now we don't have dominion over the world. Now we are helpless. Now we are dependent upon God's uh, atonement. We, we, it's not a day of shilton, it's not a day of leadership. 
So therefore, we must remove that symbol of being the highest level, which is the shoes. That's why you kill it. Is there something interesting? And of course, when Rishon is on the Arbach, recently passed away in Israel, he says, he says, when it comes to Avelos, whether it's over the Beis or any shouldn't happen to us, person is sitting Shiva and Avel and so on. The reason why you remove your shoes is because if you're in Avelos, that's not the time for Shilton. That's not the time to show your mastery over the world. Why? Because what does Shlomo HaMelech say? Ain't Shilton beyond HaMoves. Which normally means that there's no such thing as a ruler when your day to die comes. Even kings die. Even Rosh Hashivas die, we must say. People die. That's why God created the world. Ain't Shilton beyond HaMoves. But he's interpreting the Pasuk differently. Ain't Shilton beyond HaMoves means that when somebody dies, so what it does is it reminds us about how temporary life is. Here today, and it could be gone tomorrow. Don't we know about people that they were active and busy and so on, and then in the short time, and then they're gone? So ain't Shilton and Yom means the day of death reminds us that we don't have mastery over the world. We're in God's hands, totally. So that's, he says, that's the same reason for the Chalitz of Ayyubu. In this pamphlet or newsletter, the Torah that was handed out, it may be in some of the shul store, for the new one comes. A Shilton the Yom HaMavis tells you that there's no Shilton when we're talking about this brother-in-law and the sister-in-law as well. Why? Why remove the shoe? He says why. He says because the relationship of husband to wife, wife to husband, definitely in the Torah scheme of things, a wife is not subservient to her husband. That's clear from so many different sources. He has, a, he has an obligation to respect her. She has an obligation to respect him. But the fact that in many households, the system is the husband comes home from work, and it's the woman who has prepared his supper and puts it out on the table, need not necessarily be the Torah's ideal. Not necessarily. Many, many homes, she's the breadwinner, and he's preparing the food at home, or they share the duties. Not subservient, but nevertheless, we would agree that there are certain things that if a wife does for her husband, it's either a sign of chiba, it's a sign of endearment, she's doing it to him because of the bond that exists between them, or it's part of the setup in that particular marriage. The Gemara says that there is nothing more debasing for one man than to have to put on or take off the shoes of another man. That's a subservient act. An Evet does that for his master. But one person doesn't do the other, unless you're not able. A person is uh, able to put on his shoes and take it off. One person doesn't do it for another. I remember years and years ago, some of us remember there was a family here, Rabbi Moshe Muller. And he passed away. His wife, Miriam Muller, married me, got me, so you know. So I went to visit him when he was ill. 
And I said, you know, it's a nice day. Why don't you get out? Just a little fresh air. Let's take a little walk. So it's fine, okay. So I saw he had trouble putting on his shoes. So I said, here, let me help you. He says, no. No? As long as I'm not, I struggle. But one person should not be putting on the shoe or taking off the shoe of somebody else. I remember that was his reaction. Excuse me? I said, if they can't do it, you hear what I said? I said, if they can't do it, it's one thing. But he was going to struggle to do it. He says, as long as I can do it, yes. So now, he's wearing the shoe. In a sense, she is saying to him, especially the way some of the questions say, she has to actually bend down to, to take off the shoe. So what she is saying to him is symbolically, I'm willing to be your helpmate. I'm willing that you marry me, and I will be your wife. I will do all the things that a wife will do for her husband. And in that sense, symbolically, he is standing, <coughs> and she is bent over in, in a subservient posture. When he declares, no, I do not want to marry you, I don't want you to be the helpmate. I don't want you to be the one who helps me and serves me and so on. So that's the question say. She goes ahead and takes off the shoe and by doing so is saying to him in a defiant way, so to speak, okay, you did not want me to be your helpmate? Okay, buddy, now you're on your own. So it's a symbolic freeing her bonds to him because the Torah intended that he should marry her. And so by removing the shoe, that's the message that she's giving. This is one interpretation of what the Chalitza ceremony does. Now, the question is asked, what about a situation where the wife does not want to remarry? For whatever reason, the husband died, childless, there's this bond, this chain that she has to the husband. So if they have the Chalitza ceremony, now she's free to remarry. But let's say she doesn't want, she's not interested. For whatever reason, age, uh, health, just not interested. She had one husband, he died, that's it. Uh, not never again, for whatever reason. So the question is asked in, among the rabbis, do they still have to have Chalitza or not? Or can we tolerate a situation where, okay, she lives out the rest of her life chained to her brother-in-law. But so what? If she's not going to be with any other man, so what of it? So what of it? She's chained. She doesn't have the option to remarry, but she doesn't care. Do they have to do it anyway? So interestingly enough, no less a authority than the Hassam Sofer, who was literally the, the leader of Austrian Jewish, son-in-law of Yekiva Eger, the Hassam Sofer says, if they don't want, she doesn't want, specifically her, if she doesn't want, you don't have to have Chalitza. Which at first glance would seem to be a, uh, an intolerable situation. The person wants to have options. doesn't want to be chained down. He says no. He says, Chalitza is what's called a matia. It frees her. She doesn't want to be free. She doesn't have to be free. So all the other commentaries ask on him, 
But wait a minute. There's another benefit to Chalitza, which we haven't discussed yet. And I'm going to introduce this now. That's more of a Kabbalistic concept. And that is that when husband and wife were married, okay, a man has his neshama, and she has her neshama, and presumably marriage which results in children. So what happens is their neshamos blend, come together, and manifest themselves in the nefesh of their children. Where a marriage is childless, and then the husband dies, so there's really no place for that neshama to go of the husband, except where, so Kabbalah says, into the wife. Sounds strange, but that's what it says. So this wife is now, it's, it's not something you can see or touch or feel, but it's there. She now is walking around with the neshama of her late husband, besides her own neshama. And that's not a good situation to be in. Not for her, and not for him either. So the chalitza ceremony serves a definite purpose, Kabbalistically. Besides the purpose of freeing her to remarry now, not being chained to him, but it also releases the neshama of the brother. So that now if the, if the other brother marries her, so that if they have children, says he gives the name of the, of the deceased, and he inherits the property, and so in a sense his name has been perpetuated, has been carried on. If not, so then what the chalitza ceremony does is severs the bond, and by doing so, releases the neshama from the wife. And where does it go? It goes, it's, it's, it's known as the Olam HaNeshamos, the world of the spirit, the world of, of the soul. I know nothing about that. I cannot describe it. I know nothing about it. But the point being that it's a very big chesed, both for the nifter and for the wife, to have the ceremony of Chalitza, if there will be no Yibam, for that reason alone. So therefore they asked the Samsofa, how could you say that if she decides she's never going to remarry, and therefore there's no need to have the Chalitza, what about these other benefits? So for answer, he says that you have to make a distinction between what's called Iker Hadin, the main law, and Kabbalistic concepts of Chesed. Yes, there's Chesed, and a person is obligated to do kindness. And if you can do a kindness with a person, if any kind of kindness person needs help in any way, you should do the should help them. Chesed. Although chesed yibane, we can build the whole world with chesed. Nobody's putting down chesed. Certainly not the chesam said. Of course you should do chesed. But he was asked, what is the din? What is the din concern? And he says that according to the din, she could refuse. If she, if she has no interest in remarrying, and uh, it's the fact that whatever reason why she doesn't want to go through the ceremony, I don't know why. But she, she doesn't want to have the whole ceremony. I can tell you the times when I did see, uh, the, the two times when I was there, it's very emotional. And he was crying and she was crying. And it's, it's, it's very emotional, of course. 
So maybe she didn't want to have to go through the whole thing. She says, no, I'm sorry. No, Halitza, I'm never going to remarry. Or if I decide one day I want to remarry, so then I'll worry then. I'll call the best then. Who knows if the brother will still be living? There's only one brother. Maybe he'll predecease me, and then there'll be no problem. Okay? So therefore, in such a case, interesting how the Sarsarka is willing to separate the din and all these other Kabbalistic testicles. Yes. Let's say she does it with the brother. She but does it with the She goes through the Chalitza ceremony. Right. Yes. But what about those other relatives, like the story of Ruth, with the cousin in any way, and then with him? But what if there were a suggestion of these people that she had to do with each and every one of them? Very good question. <laughs> the Svarim go to great lengths to separate the concepts of Yibun that existed by Yehud and Tamar and by Rus and Boaz, and the formulated halacha today. The formulated halacha today is the only relative of the deceased husband who has Yibum or Chalitza or any Zika of any kind is only the brothers. Nobody else. No, she does not. No, no, no. no, that's a very good question, and the Gemara discusses that. Gemara asks that very same question. It's not a joke. Does that mean all four brothers have to do it? The answer is no. Once one brother gives the chalitza, she is now free to remarry, and she has it breaks the chain, or the potential chain that was there for all the brothers. But no, the question is that one. Excuse me. Now you're getting into it. If Yibum, so the choice to make Yibum to marry is only the brother. Yimar says the oldest of the brother has first choice. He might necessarily be one of the one, or he may already have a family. We're talking about at a time when polygamy was permitted. He may have a big family, or maybe he's not attracted to her. Or maybe his present wife won't allow him to make the Yibum. There could be a bunch of reasons why not. So then the next brother and so on. Yes? What about the spin? Okay. 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 I said all right. Okay. All right. We are going to talk about the spinning, and I'll get to the spinning as well. <clears throat> Since we're talking about a symbolic spinning, in the sense that he's not spinning in her face, she's not spinning in his face, I'm not. But rather, she is showing. So now, the commentaries are divided as to what the message of the spitting is. <clears throat> Some say, the way we would assume, just from this cursory reading of the text, that what it means is, she is showing her contempt. As we have the Pusset, what we wanted to say about Miriam, Miriam spoke badly against uh, Moshe, saying, he's so special, what about me and Aaron, my brother Aaron? She spoke disrespectful about him, and she was punished. The question is, how long should she be punished? Seven days or so. So the Torah says, if her father had spit at her, she would be embarrassed for seven days. That's how the Torah describes embarrassment. So spitting is an act of putting the other person down, showing that they're nobody, they're nothing, <laughs> spitting on them, so right. showing that they're nothing. Some want to say that the spit is, comes from the mouth, which is where the where Dibur comes from. So just like by Miriam, it uses the example of spitting on her because she sinned with her mouth, 
So we know the rule of Nibachinegadvida. You punish the same way as the sin. So if the sin was done by the mouth, so therefore the punishment, in this case the embarrassment, is also symbolically through the spit that comes from the mouth. That's one interpretation. There are others who want to say uh, that the, the spit is, a, is symbolic of the fact that he was not willing to marry her. If he had married her, so man and woman get together and they hopefully have a child. So the spit resembles the male seed. And therefore, that's the message that what he is, what she is telling him. You could have married me. We would have had children. We could have perpetuated your late brother's memory, name. But you didn't. So therefore, that's the reason for it. But others want to say... Is it partially meant to sort of shame the man for not wanting to marry Yes, yes, yes. Shaming him, yes. Publicly, publicly disgracing him, yes. Okay. There are others who say, however... So the Rebbeinu B'chaya has an interesting, it was Rebbeinu B'chaya who says an interesting thought. <laughs> he says that the act of spitting towards him, not in his face, but towards him, is really the way of showing him that the mitzvah of Yibum should be done for no ulterior motive. Not because he's attracted to her, but she wants him to marry her because she's attracted to him. But no. Yishem Shemayim. Yishem Mitzvah. Yishem for the purpose of freeing <coughs> of freeing the soul of, of, of the late brother that's inside him, so, as we said. So the spitting is, in a sense, to make him unattractive. It's true, he's not spitting onto his face, but just the mere fact that he has been spat at renders him unattractive. And the message that what she's saying to him is that Sheker Achein Behevel beauty is nothing, that should not be your main interest. And therefore, this was a mitzvah, this was an opportunity that you had, and, and you, 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 you gave it up. You decided not to do it. Therefore, the act of the spirit. That is some of the highlights of what the spitting has mentioned. I'm just going to close with a very interesting question that I saw raised by both the Shamshul Fuller Hirsch and also the Torah Tamimah. They both asked the same question. Ultimately, when we do a mitzvah, we're doing it. Why? Because this is the Ratzon Hashem. This is what God wants. Yes. God doesn't need our lulav. God doesn't need our spilling. He gives us mitzvahs for our own good and to fulfill His design. So if God tells us not to eat chametz on Pesach, That's his desire. But if God says, if the only food you have on Pesach is chametz, and it's a matter of life and death, 
not only is it that you're allowed to eat the chametz, but you're obligated to. The chaybay. So it's the same rotzon Hashem if you abstain from chametz when you're not allowed to eat it, or when you eat the chametz when God wants you to eat it. Getting into the car and Shabbos to take a sick person to the hospital is no other way you can you do it. Remember, years ago we were in Israel, and besides the Yad Vashem Museum, but in, in Hartzion there's also a smaller Holocaust Museum, I forget the name. And I remember there, they showed on the wall, where somebody, it was handwritten, somebody during World War II had written out the following declaration. The same words that you say when you're about to do a mitzvah. It was written out I'm about to fulfill God's will. God told us that we have to we have to save our lives, even if it means breaking laws of the Torah. It was all written out. And therefore, I'm going to eat this chomitz on Pesach with the same kavono that I would have eaten matzah. I still remember that. You need to announce this. What's that? You need to announce this. You remember that. Do I need to announce it? Did he? I guess he felt to leave it over a legacy for others, or maybe for the other people that were there to put it in writing. Can't deny it later. Put it in writing. Yes. That's what he wrote there. And he, and he was right. It's the same mitzvah. Because we're doing the Matsanashim. So therefore, they ask the following question. They say, there are times when Yibum is the prescribed course of action. At the time of the Chomish, at the time of the Gemara, they made Yibum. They married. It's a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law, but the Torah says marry, perpetuate the name, and they marry. That's a mitzvah. If for whatever reason you can't do the Hebrew, uh, <coughs> so there's chalitza, which is, as we said, is second best. Nowadays, there's no choice. It has to be chalitza. But when there was a choice, chalitza was second best. And we said there are those who say that all the, it's not really a mitzvah, you don't have to do chalitza, some sort of sense, if you do it, she's free to marry. All the other benefits you get are just the peripheral. But the, there's no mitzvah to do chalitza. But others say, yes, there's a mitzvah to do chalitza. Okay. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Is he bound in any way to her? Does he have to support her or anything else? No, no. No, he does not. He does not. No. He's not restricted. He has other wives. He can have more than one wife. And no restrictions at all. But he does. Yes? Oh, he's a It's equivalent in some ways and in some ways not. It's equivalent, in, like I said before, she cannot marry a Kohen now. In that sense, it's, it's equivalent, but it's not really because divorce, again, severs a marriage bond. They're married. Okay. In the case of the Yibum, there's just, this called the Zika, there's just a, 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 they're not intimate, they're not married. 
it's just a bond, a chain that has to be dealt with. It's not quite the same. So it's not a divorce. But she's considered in terms of as far as the Kohen, but only as far as that goes. Yes? I'm sorry? If there were no brother-in-law. If there was no brother-in-law, yes. Well, they tell you to marry her. No, she was a widow. Well, a widow, she can marry a widow, only a Cohen Gogol can't marry a widow. Right. A Cohen can marry a widow, he just can't marry a divorcee. Right. But if she got, so if there was no brother and she, she was just a widow, yes, yes a Cohen could marry a widow. Yes. Yes. Well, once there's Halitza, right? So in that sense, so getting back to this question, and we have to stop here, and that is, he said that it's just a bigger mitzvah to eat chametz on Pesach if to save your life as it is to eat matz on Pesach. That being the case, we said that where is the choice of yibum and chametzah? Yibum is best, but it's not always recommended. There can be many reasons why not, and there are many cases where the bezdin will tell the couple, the brother-in-law and sister-in-law, do not marry, don't have yibum, don't have yibum. This is not going to be a good marriage, for whatever reason. There could be a disparity in age. There could be, he could be sick, she could be sick. There could be many reasons why in the judgment of the rabbis, Yibam is not a good idea. Okay, but there's still this bond there. So the rabbis say, okay, under these circumstances, we cannot allow you to do the Yibam, but you do the Halitza. So Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi, uh, asked, in that case, the couple, she and he, they're listening to the rabbis, who presumably are echoing what God wants in this case. They're saying, do not do evil. He's willing to marry her. He could be 80 and she could be 30. They could have such cases like that. And the best is say, this is not a good idea. This is a, this Yibum, is, this is not good, for whatever reason. Okay. But they're willing to marry. And why are they not marrying? Because their rabbis told them not to. So in such a case, why should she spit at him? Why should she even remove another shoe? Which we're saying that according to most commentaries is an act of disgust. It's an act of put down, an act of embarrassing, as you said. All very true. Why is he deserving of this? And even the pronouncement that the Torah says, he has to say, I don't want to marry her. I don't want to marry her. He wants to marry her. The rabbis told him to say, I don't want to marry her. But why is he deserving of such a contempt? Why? So they go into lengthy, I'd have to tell you, if you've ever read her, he has phrase after, one sentence could have 20 different phrases, you know. By the time I got to the end of the sentence, I didn't know where the question ended and the answer There was such a long, long answer, so I really don't know the answer that he gave. Okay. I was thinking to myself, however, that we do have a concept in the Gemara was called and Yeshiva, they used to call it low floor. Not like floor. Low floor. It's really low floor. Which means low floor. Which means the rabbis did not differentiate in their rules. Which means that the rabbis promulgate laws to certain situations. 
Now, there may be some cases where it doesn't apply. So they're not going to say, well, in this case, yes, and in this case, no. They do, they make the rules across the board. Whether or not this particular situation fits your particular case, doesn't matter. The rabbis instituted a certain thing, and you do it no matter what. It could be that the Torah, too, I mean, any concept that we have in the Rabbanon is really based on the Torah laws and so on. The Torah also gives rules that in many cases may not apply to everybody. I remember in class, the, the kids would ask, yeah, but uh, uh, what about in the case where this one went there and this one went here and, and that, that reason would not apply, right? No, that's the rule. So even though there might be a few that you might say fall through the cracks, so to speak, that the law doesn't apply to it, but this idea of the more public across the board, this is what we do. So the brothers code it still applies. No, there's no. Actually, Mishnah says in Cholson. No, no, there's no Cholson by a kind of. Gemara says why? Because it's not there. Harris is speaking for the very level. Gemara says this. But you raise the question. Yeah, yeah. God has more rules. He's holier. He can vary in a will. So, so then I, I was. I felt good because then later I found it. I found. I, I tried to go back and find where I found it, and I, I wasn't able to retrace my steps, so to speak. But I did find it. It, it was in English. There's somebody running the question who says in their explanation. Maybe it was uh, maybe the Chabalibuitz or shown one of those that are in English. One of them where they uh, describe the whole ceremony of Chabitza, and they do raise this point as well. And they say the Torah knows that in the majority of cases, where a man has the option to be evil, where he has the option to marry his sister-in-law. Most people would want to do it. I'm not discussing an attraction between the system and the brother-in-law. I'm discussing the benefits to the neshama, as we discussed. There are many benefits to the neshama of the late brother. And who would not want to help out a brother? In the normal course of events, of course, the brothers who don't talk to each other. You know that. But in the normal course of events, when brothers live together, it's a beautiful thing. So therefore, in the normal course of events, if a man lost his brother and never his brother had no children, that means that there's nobody to perpetuate his name. There's nobody to take care of his fields. There's nobody to take care of his wife. It's not a good situation. So in the normal course of events, a person would want to do it. In those, in the majority of cases, the person refuses to do it, so then he's deserving of contempt. But yes, there are cases where he's not deserving of contempt because he's perfectly willing to marry, and it's the rabbis who are saying it's not a good But once that becomes the ceremony, so you got to say it, you got to spit it, you got to remove the shoe, whether that reason applies to that. Yes. I don't know who I heard from, but I remember hearing somebody saying that it's a hard thing for the male to do, the brother to, to do this, because he's negating himself. So that he, the, like, you know, he's doing this in the name of his brother. It's, it's going to be his brother's kid. It's not going to be his kid. It's his brother's kid. They're naming it with him. He's just living his brother's life. What about his life? Okay. Well, Isn't he losing uh, his life? Uh, okay. So just to be clear, we're talking now about Yibo. You're saying that if a man has a, if the Torah gives him a mitzvah, 
you must marry your sister-in-law in order to perpetuate your brother's uh, legacy and all the things that we discussed. So your question is, but what if it means a hardship for him, for whatever reason? Now, we said before that he may be perfectly happily married with his own family and so on. Uh, might, okay, okay. So, to answer your question, is it possible that some brothers would look at it as a as a negation of self? That what, what about, doesn't Hashem care about my feelings? Okay, that may be true. Hashem does care about his feelings. But you have to remember, we're discussing the ultimate good here. The ultimate benefit for Klal Yisrael will be is if this man's name is perpetuated. It's through his wife, his neshama is released, if they have children, if he's there to take care of the family estate, etc., etc. Does the Torah sometimes require us to do acts of chesed, which is a sacrifice on our behalf all the time? If I stop the car, I'm driving, and I see somebody else has a flat tire, so yes, I'm not in the mood, I'm going to get wet when I go out, I'm going to be late for my appointment, my back's starting to hurt me, all the reasons why I should not stop to help him change the tire. But yet the Torah requires me to do it, so I'm going to say yes. Okay then, okay. So let me tell you something. Sometimes being spit upon is the easiest way out of it. You're lucky if you can get away with just being spit on. To have Hashem's wrath is a lot worse. Okay, so your question is a good one, but it has to be taken in the context of the totality of the situation. There is such a chesed to be done here, that if Yibum is possible, I said nowadays it's not, but if it's possible, yes, there's sacrifice, but that's, that's part of it. Yes? We'll have to stop it. Yes, okay? Suppose there is a mother of one who's not married. Is it permissible in that situation? It doesn't matter whether he's married or not. Polygamy in those days was permitted. He could have two wives. I mean, nowadays. Nowadays, there's no marriage allowed. There's no yibum allowed. Only chalitza. No yibum allowed. It was done away with 1,500 years ago. Okay, well, that's the stop. Thank you. Thank you very, very much.